Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julian Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Tech trips, inflation concerns, pressure stocks from Hong Kong to New York. Aid agreed, President Biden's stimulus plan passed by the U.S. Senate. And royalty, recriminations and racism. The fallout from Harry and Meghan's interview with Oprah. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move once again. Great to be with you this Monday and a very special day today too. Happy International Women's Day to all our viewers. And in true First Move fashion, we're celebrating female entrepreneurs from around the world. The CEO of Etsy, the online retailer that's offered a lockdown lifeline to so many, but especially female sellers over the past year. We'll be coming up later on in the show to describe that and the next generation. We'll meet 16-year-old Michaela Ulmer, the founder and CEO of Me and the Bees Lemonade, on what it takes to grow a successful business at such a young age. Intimidated? Well, I can tell you I am. Now, while many are watching the raw fallout from when Harry and Meghan met Oprah, and we'll get to that later on in the show, we're also watching the raw uncertainty in global markets too. Stimulus spending and stronger data continue to pressure bond yields. The US 10-year yield, as you can see there, close to one-year highs. Yet again, benchmark US yields have tripled, in fact, since hitting historic lows last August. And that's giving stock investors indigestion. The high valuation Nasdaq, the tech sector, set to add to last week's 2% losses. We've got stocks like Amazon, Apple, all in correction territory. Oil, though, is adding to the inflation uncertainty. Brent temporarily rose above $70 a barrel after key Saudi oil facilities came under Yemeni missile and drone attacks over the weekend. We've got oil pulling back a little bit now. The challenges, though, are global. China's Shanghai Composite falling more than 2% in the overnight session. The Hang Seng tech sector losing more than 6%. It's another region battling with stimulus, recovery, and the timing of support withdrawal. Let's get to the drivers. Selena Wang joins us now from Tokyo. Selena, great to have you with us. I see many of the challenges that we talk about often in the United States mirrored in in regions like China. Support, high valuations, particularly in the tech sector. And of course, when do you pull back on some of that stimulus? Selena, talk us about the price action that you're seeing. Julie, that's exactly right. What we're seeing globally is being reflected and echoed here in Asia. The Mm. same concerns are here. Markets are spooked by the risks of rising treasury yields, as well as the government stimulus perhaps overheating the economy and those higher yields, then raise questions about whether or not equity valuations, especially in the tech sector right now, are too lofty. And there appears to still be strong selling pressure in Hong Kong and mainland markets. China CSI 300 fell 3.5% on Monday. That's the biggest one-day drop in about seven months. 
but it's not just tech stocks, Julia. Maotai, China's liquor maker, actually has lost about a quarter of its value or more than $120 billion since reaching peak market capitalization in February. But many analysts do say that this is actually a healthy, normal correction and that Chinese stocks had gotten to too frothy of a level. But also interesting to point out that we are seeing this pullback despite the better than expected trade data that we saw come out of China recently, which Oxford Economics called just another piece of evidence that China's supply chain is still doing strong and well. Silly, to tie in as well some of the comments that we've seen in recent days concerned about perhaps the valuations here. And I think that does weave in perhaps to what we saw on Friday with the updated growth target for this year. And a lot of people looking at that and going, hang on a second, that's way smaller than what we're expecting to see from China's growth this year. Why are the authorities being so conservative? Absolutely. 6% is significantly lower than what economists had been expecting, a very modest and not very ambitious target. But many analysts say this is actually good. It means that Chinese officials are not going to be pressured to boost and juice growth with unproductive projects, and they can focus on long-term sustainable growth. There have, however, been concerns about the withdrawal of the fiscal and monetary support that we saw China unleash last year in order to shore up the economy amid the pandemic. But it is clear that policymakers are not going to make any significant market shift. That's what analysts say, although there is this increased focus on reigning in debt. But I did have a conversation with Ben Emans of Medley Global Advisors, and he thinks that the policy tightening that China is going to put on sectors like housing and lending is a key reason why markets do not see China repeating stellar economic performance this year, in which he sees as a reason why China's stock market performance is going to temporarily be put on the back burner. But I think what we are seeing right now in China is that policymakers are really shifting from this post-COVID recovery mode into the mode of managing economy, an economy that is in more normal conditions. <laughs> yes, and that ultimately is a challenge that policymakers around the world have been dealing with since the financial crisis. You can provide support, taking it away is perhaps harder than the initial challenge you're dealing with perhaps. Selena Wang, great to have your, you with us and uh, for your context there. Now, as Selena was saying at the core of this, the passage of the US stimulus bill, the vote over the weekend clearing the way for final passage in the House Tuesday, with President Biden poised to sign the $1.9 trillion relief bill into law as early as this week. John Harwood joins me now. John, great to have you with us. As I alluded to there, this is effectively a done deal. The Democrats are not going to get in their own way when it comes back to the House and gets voted on once again this week. That's right. It's extraordinary. In fact, uh, Julia, the level of democratic unity that's been preserved. uh, Every Democratic president in the last half century has come into office with significantly larger congressional majorities than Joe Biden had, with at least 57 Democratic senators in every case. Joe Biden only has 50 Democratic senators. He needed every single one to pass this bill. And that's what they eventually did 
on Saturday. Joe Manchin, the uh, more conservative Democrat from West Virginia, held it up in a dispute over uh, the uh, bene- uh, extension of unemployment benefits, but it ended up as only a minor tinker uh, to this bill. Uh, they lost two votes the first time around on the House. Uh, they can lose a couple more, but no more than uh, that. Democrats have a narrow majority in the House as well. And all signs are that the Democrats are going to pass this uh, this week, put it on Joe Biden's desk before those extended unemployment benefits expire on March 14th, which has been their deadline. John, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. John Harwood there. Now, the British royal family once again needing damage control after Harry and Meghan's devastating interview with Oprah Winfrey. Meghan spoke of her suicidal thoughts uh, and Harry revealed a deep rift with his father, Prince Charles. Here's Max Foster with all the details. I just didn't want to be alive anymore. And that was a very clear and real and frightening constant thought. Driven to despair by the family she married into and the institution behind it. We had to go to this event and I remember him saying, I don't think you can go. And I said, I can't be left alone. Because you were afraid of what you might do to yourself? Meghan, Duchess of Sussex, opening up to Oprah Winfrey about being singled out. She believes forced out of the royal family for her race. Magic, it's pretty amazing. Concerns even raised by unnamed royals about the colour of her child's skin. just means so much. And also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. What? And who... Who is having that conversation with you? What? So, um, there is a conversation. Hold up, hold up. There's Stop several right con- now. There are several conversations. There's a about conversation it. with you, with Harry. An even more shocking allegation that she was told her child couldn't be a prince for unstated reasons, not even afforded a security detail. The idea of our son not being safe and also the idea of the first member of color in this family not being titled in the same way that other grandchildren would be. A barrage of negative press damaging Meghan's mental health She says the palace did nothing to help her, instead refusing to combat media rumours, including allegations she made her sister-in-law, the Duchess of Cambridge, cry when Meghan says it was the other way around. Harry comparing their experience to his mother's. What I was seeing was history repeating itself, but more perhaps, or definitely far more dangerous because then you add race in. The couple deny claims they blindsided the Queen when they announced their departure, another rumour they believe was peddled by the palace. When we were in Canada, I I had uh, three conversations with my grandmother and two conversations with my father um, before he stopped taking my calls and then said, can you put this all in writing, what your plan is? Harry says he has a deep respect for his grandmother, the Queen, and has spoken to her more in the last year than he has for many years. As for his father... I feel really let down because 
he's been through something similar. He knows what pain feels like. And this is, and Archie's his grandson. Max Foster reporting there and CNN chief media correspondent Brian Stelter joins us now. Brian, I don't think anybody watched last night and was unmoved. There's long been discussion that Meghan and Kate have been treated differently by the media, wherever it is coming from in the world, but particularly the British media, um, Brian. So many challenging themes coming out of this racism, uh, bullying, mental health. Do you think it changes anything? This interview changes anything? I do think it changes perceptions of Harry and Meghan around the world. Uh, While they may not change a lot of public sentiment in the United Kingdom, where it seems like views and opinions are hardened against the couple, uh, they are basically introducing themselves to the world marketplace. You know, we know they have these deals with Netflix and Spotify. They are creating a media brand of their own. They haven't really released many of the any shows or projects or ventures yet. They are just starting out with their new lives. And this interview was the big introduction. So I think they probably brought many fans over to their side. Frankly, a lot of people who didn't know about any of this backstory or intrigue are paying attention all of a sudden. I think that's a big deal, Julia. Yeah, I mean, there will be people looking at this, particularly in the UK, that perhaps have greater knowledge of the situation going, you joined the most elite protocol-driven, archaic institution in the world. It doesn't make things like racism, sexism, whatever it is, right. But many of these things, in a weird way, are accepted as part of the firm and the institution and the archaic ways that the royal family go about this. A lot of this is about systems. And they talked bluntly about systems, about this institution. And we're living through a a period in time where institutions are up for grabs, where systems are uh, open to change, or at least they're claiming to be open to change, where there are people on the outside and inside trying to change. I'm thinking about the Me Too movement. I'm Mm. thinking about union organizing. I'm thinking about all these trends towards smashing existing systems. And that is what we are seeing now in some ways. Brian, money? There was money involved for this interview. Uh, Well, this was a very valuable interview for Oprah Winfrey. So when she had the interview, she went out and and offered it to multiple networks. CBS paid seven to nine million dollars, according to The Wall Street Journal. But the real value here was in the ad sales and in the international distribution, because this special will air in the United Kingdom and in other markets. In fact, it already has aired in many parts of the world and will air later today in other markets. There's a lot of money there. But I think long term, this is really about the business uh, interests of Harry and Meghan months and years from now. What can they build as a brand? And of course, it's also about the business interests of the tabloids, the UK press. Meghan and Harry have declared war on those tabloids, uh, and those tabloids are also big business. And arguably war on members of the royal family too. There's um, many angles here. Brian, great to have your context. Thank you so much. Brian Stelter there. For more coverage of the royal family from CNN, including the history of the monarchy, CNN has launched a royal newsletter. To sign up, go to cnn.com slash royal news. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Pope Francis is heading back to the Vatican after a historic four-day visit to Iraq. During the plane ride home, he said this trip was the most exhausting so far. The Pope ended the trip by urging Iraqi Christians brutalized by ISIS to forgive and not give up. Francis is the first Pope to visit Iraq. 
Protesters across Myanmar are on strike, aiming to paralyze the economy now controlled by military rulers. Witnesses say at least two demonstrators were shot dead in a northern town today. Security forces have started moving into hospitals and universities in an increasingly severe crackdown on dissent. Syrian President Bashir al-Assad and his wife Asma have tested positive for COVID-19. According to a presidential statement aired on state TV, both have mild symptoms. They're described as being in, quote, good health and a stable condition. All right, still to come on First Move, V is for vaccine and then comes vacation. Now TripAdvisor launches a new service for repeat travellers and creating a buzz. The 16-year-old who turned her grandma's recipe into an $11 million business and even hyped off some to save the bees. That's all coming up on First Move. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where tech stocks are set to begin the week with fresh losses. It's been a volatile pre-market session too. Tech futures way off the lows that we saw a few hours ago, but still down around half a percent. Call it, if you will, a tale of two markets, the Dow, filled with traditional companies that will do well when economies improve. That rose almost 2% last week, while the rate-sensitive tech sector, which has clearly gained more as well, fell some 2%, a dickens of a dilemma for growth investors. But entrepreneurs, meanwhile, are not phased. UK food delivery giant Deliveroo announcing today that it's moving ahead with plans to list on the London Stock Exchange after enjoying a huge lockdown jump in business last year. The Amazon-backed company saying it will give bonuses of almost $14,000 to its most productive risers when the IPO launches. Some happy people there, I think. Travel is set for a summer surge as COVID-19 restrictions ease and people venture abroad after a year or more in their homes. Online travel company TripAdvisor is preparing to capture that rush. It's launching a new subscription service. Membership is $99 a year. Perks include upgrades, discounts and exclusive services. And joining us now is Stephen Corfer. He's president and chief executive officer of TripAdvisor. Stephen, fantastic to have you on the show. I think it's safe to say the investor and the analyst community met this announcement with wild excitement. But let's talk about what's in it for the traveler. What do I get for my $99 if I sign up? Well, we really think that this is one of the most innovative uh, things to happen in travel in the past decade. For the average traveler being able to subscribe to something for $99 to really up your travel, to be able to get that fruit plate in the room, the bottle of wine, the free upgrade if it's available, to be able to call someone to get some help while you're on the road, and to get amazing discounts on hotels and experiences all throughout the globe for an entire year. What a great subscription product to have, and you've seen subscriptions work so well in so many other consumer categories. How much, on average, do you have an estimate of, of what money people have to spend in order to recoup that $99? I mean, our average savings so far, and again, it's just in a limited rollout to U.S. audiences only at the moment, more to come, but... Uh, right now, we're seeing an average savings of north of $200 in that first purchase that only costs a $100 subscription. So right off the bat, everyone is saving money and they get all the benefits for the entire rest of the year. I mean, some of the analyst communities are saying this is a $1 billion revenue opportunity. You could see 10 million subscribers. Stephen, do you have a guesstimate of the number of subscribers that you think you can bring on board with this? 
Well, we're very excited about the opportunity that a site that has the reach of TripAdvisor to be able to help so many travelers all around the world. When we look at uh, 2019, for example, we had over 160 million times when a visitor was traveling, uh, planning their trip on TripAdvisor and clicked off to potentially book a hotel worth more than $750. That's kind of a, a threshold in our mind to like, that makes this $100 subscription worthwhile. And again, who doesn't love a discount? Who doesn't love a perk? Who doesn't love to be able to be savvy travelers? And then for the hotelier, this is a zero commission product for hoteliers. So any hotelier interested in reaching our massive, massive audience can sign up for the program, uh, offer a discount and a perk that we pass along directly to the traveler, and in turn, that hotel gets premier placement on TripAdvisor, they get more bookings for trip, from TripAdvisor, they get full customer information, and there's no risk. There's no long-term contract, there's no upfront fee, and there's no commission to TripAdvisor. So we really think it's a great win-win for the traveler and for the hotelier. That was gonna be what I asked you next. What's in it for the hoteliers to join up to this program as well and to be available? Is that what you see as the distinguishing feature perhaps between a hotelier going to you or advertising on a booking.com, for example, or Expedia? Well, we think the smart hotelier will continue to advertise on all channels that are cost effective for them. That would include a booking and Expedia and the many other great online travel agencies that are out there. What TripAdvisor offers is we are the largest travel site on the planet. We have more people planning a vacation in any year than anyone else. And so for a hotel to be able to get the visibility of being near the top of our ranking because of the value, because of that discount that that hotel is delivering to the traveler, we think that's just a phenomenal opportunity. So of course the hotelier will continue to sell their rooms through other online channels. We're just suggesting that, trap, uh, that distributing their room through TripAdvisor is also a great way to, to make sure their occupancy is as best as it can be, filled with the type of travelers that TripAdvisor uh, attracts, namely leisure travelers looking for a longer stay on average. I mean, planning's one thing, and I have to say I've been planning trips for the last year as escapism, quite frankly, but converting that to actually booking a trip is the key thing. What have you seen this year as we start to see at least in certain countries, vaccines start to proliferate, confidence coming back that we can see an end now to the pandemic, at least in certain regions. What are you seeing in terms of actual bookings, Stephen? We see bookings are growing now. We see it uh, uh, certainly in, in the United States, one of our biggest markets, but it's picking up all over. You're absolutely right, it's directly related to how safe people feel when they are traveling. And while there's not a lot of vaccine distribution yet, there's, a, there's people have in their head, I'm likely to be able to get vaccinated in the next 60 days, in the next 90 days. And so therefore, I'm, I'm doing more than armchair traveling, I'm doing more than looking around, I'm actually starting to, to plan my trip. They wanna make sure that they can get out this summer. And the, uh, uh, the surveys that we've done back, back up what we see on the site behavior, exactly. People are eager to get out, pent up demand. They're, Many people are planning to take more trips than uh, than they did uh, in 2019 because we've all felt the trauma, the, the challenge of being cooped up for so long. 
Absolutely. Uh, vaccine passports, Stephen, very quickly. Uh, a travel aid or a inhibitor in your mind? Oh, I think it will be fabulous uh, if many countries adopt the notion of show us your vaccine certification and we'll let you in, period. Of course, countries will also, many will also either ask for uh, or if you don't have a passport, require a COVID test. And I think that's fine, especially for international travel, because everyone wants to feel safe. And the sooner that uh, uh, COVID can be eradicated, the better. More people get vaccinated, the better. And every little incentive globally for people to go ahead and get vaccinated, I think is a great thing. And so uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of, uh, uh, of a comprehensive set of rules that would enable travelers to go freely where they want once they are vaccinated. Stephen, great to chat to you. Thank you so much for that and uh, giving us the update on the subscription service. So Stephen Crawford there, the President and CEO and Executive Officer, Chief Executive Officer of TripAdvisor. Thank you for that. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and US stocks are up and running on this first trading day of the week. And as expected, a softer open for tech, a continuation of the losses that we saw last week, but a higher open for the blue chip heavy Dow on hopes that the near $2 trillion in new fiscal spending passed by Congress would jumpstart hiring and growth. Goldman Sachs predicting today that the US unemployment rate could fall from 6% to just over 4% this year. Deutsche Bank, however, noting that the United States will need to create 700,000 jobs each month for the next two years to get back to where we were pre-pandemic. That gives you a sense of the devastation in this country alone. Bitcoin up above $50,000 per Bitcoin. Once again, Ethereum, the biggest crypto gainer, up some 5% on news that Chinese photo editing app firm MeToo has bought a large amount of both Bitcoin and Ethereum, the latest corporation to embrace the crypto craze. Etsy, an online marketplace of craft and handmade goods, has opened up new economic opportunities for women from all over the world. The company joins us today in celebrating International Women's Day, saying that more than 80% of its sellers are female business owners. And joining us now is Etsy CEO Josh Silverman. Josh, fantastic to have you on the show. I just mentioned there, actually, we've seen many jobs lost in the United States in particular, but many of those, a far greater proportion, were women. And just in this country alone, but I know it's global too, women on this platform selling goods. That's right. So first... Uh, there's never been a more important time to celebrate and lift up women. As hard as the pandemic has been on everyone, it's been particularly hard on women. Millions of women have left the workforce, and uh, they're also trying to homeschool their kids. They're trying to uh, take care of family members who are sick. So it's been an incredibly trying time uh, for, for women around the world. And, uh, you know, we're really proud of the fact that I think Etsy has been able to help. Active sellers on Etsy have grown 67% year over year. There's now 4.4 million active sellers on Etsy, and over 80% of those are women. And importantly, two-thirds of sellers on Etsy say that their sales stayed stable, stable or even grew during the pandemic. How many of these people are doing it to supplement their income? I think we're showing the statistic there. It's around 65%. Can you give us a sense of what the average earnings are? 
Well, uh, you know, it varies obviously greatly by sellers. For some, it's just a hobby, but uh, as your statistics show, about two thirds say that it is a, a meaningful or even primary source of their income. So, uh, you know, average sales per seller last year were about $2,500 per seller, but obviously some sold much more than that and, and others sold less depending on on uh, how much time and effort they were they were putting into their shop. One of the exciting things about Etsy is that it's the cheapest and easiest way to really become an entrepreneur. For 20 cents, you can open a shop and sell to the whole world. And when you compare that to traditionally what it would take to, for example, sign a lease for a storefront and buy inventory, this is such a, a more cost-effective way to get in business and start to learn what's gonna sell of your products and how to price them. And so we're really proud of the on-ramp that we provide for, for women all around the world. Yeah, the access to a marketplace here it is huge. What does Etsy do better than Amazon? Because I guess there will be people looking at this going, hang on a second, but there are marketplaces, there are other marketplaces available that people could sell their goods, perhaps they're more global. What's the advantage of Etsy over a bigger player, perhaps like an Amazon? Etsy stands for something different. We're only for sellers who actually make or design their own products. Our mission is keeping commerce human. So if you want to buy from the person that actually made the product, if you want to have something made just for you, if you want it to arrive with a handwritten note, that's what you go to Etsy for. There's lots of things you don't care about. You just want them to arrive fast and cheap and they'll end up in a landfill two seconds later. And there's plenty of other places to go and 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 buy from, from them. But what we I think we've seen during the pandemic is people maybe want to buy fewer things, but they want those things to mean more. They want to buy from an actual uh, individual. They want to support small businesses. And that's really what Etsy's all about. Yeah, the story behind it as much as um, the product itself that you're buying. And just so that our viewers are aware, because I remember us having a conversation with mask selling people selling handmade masks at the beginning of the pandemic. And just for perspective now, that's 4% of sales on the platform, it is way bigger and way broader. And in the UK and in Germany, the growth that you're seeing there is pretty phenomenal. So talk us through all of those things, because I do want to touch on these aspects of the business as well. Sure. I mean, one of the most special things about the Etsy platform is how agile it is, how much right. it responds immediately to to customer demands. So in April of last year, when demand for fabric face masks suddenly skyrocketed, within days, there were hundreds of thousands of masks for sale on Etsy. It would have been unimaginable for a traditional retailer to build a supply chain and develop uh, supplies like that, but anyone with a sewing machine could list and sell fabric okay. face masks within minutes on Etsy. And in fact, Etsy sellers sold $740 million worth of fabric face masks last year. And that protected PPE for first responders and people who needed it. It allowed buyers to get fabric face masks that had some sense of style or personality to them. And it provided a really important income stream for, uh, for, for sellers. But to your point, you know, there's many other places now that you can buy fabric face masks. Non- face mask items more than doubled in the fourth quarter of 2020. So Etsy sold about $3.6 billion worth of goods in the fourth quarter, and only 4% of those were, were fabric face masks. But we're responding to new trends. So for example, during the inauguration, 
Within a few days of the inauguration, there was $1.9 million worth of Bernie Sanders-inspired mitts and, and, <laughs> and, and, and other uh, uh, merchandise. <laughs> How fascinating. I was going to ask you what's a, what's a very um, hot product at the moment, but Bernie Sanders, the knitted Bernie Sanders, um, fantastic. And grumpy just, with the whole, with the, uh, you know, if it's, if it's important in popular culture, it's selling on Etsy. And that's the point, I think. I mentioned, um, just very quickly, I mentioned two really hot markets, the UK and Germany. What about this year? Which markets do you think are going to be the, the, the key ones for the company in terms of growth? Thank you for asking, and so important. Etsy had really breakout growth in, in, in international. In fact, 41% of sales uh, on Etsy were international, meaning they crossed a border. And the UK was particularly explosive. Uh, so sales approximately doubled uh, in in the UK uh, and and almost tripled in, in many quarters. And, and Etsy went from being a top 10 to a top five most visited e-commerce site in the UK and really uh, became an important part of the public consciousness. We're also making great progress in Germany, which saw tremendous growth, as well as France and Canada and, and Australia and, and other markets. So, you know, w- what we're seeing is real vibrancy, where more buyers bring more sellers and more sellers bring more buyers. The Etsy marketplace gets better as it gets bigger. And we're so much bigger in each of our markets now than we were even one year ago that I think it bodes really well for the future. Yeah, go the girls. Josh Silverman, CEO of Etsy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you on. All right, after the break, you could see she's living the champagne lifestyle on Lemonade Money. Entrepreneur, writer, environmental campaigner and receiver of hugs from President Obama. Michaela Ulmer's inspiring story is next. Welcome back to First Move. Choose the challenge is this year's International Women's Day's theme. My next guest has chosen more challenges in her 16 years than I have in my entire lifetime. After being stung by a bee twice, Michaela Ulmer set out to protect them. Aged just four and a half years old, she opened a lemonade stand to raise awareness for bee conservation. She signed an $11 million deal with Whole Foods at aged 11 and won over investors on the TV show Shark Tank at the tender age of nine. She's now sold over a million bottles in big brand stores. And her book, Be Fearless, Dream Like a Kid, has inspired more entrepreneurs around the world. Michaela is CEO of Me and the Bees Lemonade and joins me now. Wow. I'm terrified and intimidated. (laughs) Great to have you on the show. How does it feel when people say you are a great and inspiring role model, not just for girls, for anyone that wants to be an entrepreneur? I mean, it's an honor because I I continue doing this because I really enjoy seeing people who are inspired by my story. Um, I love being able to do something that I'm passionate about, which is saving the bees. But another one of my favorite parts is being able to talk and interact and teach. So when I see other girls and women who have either started their own business or um, taken up a challenge because they saw my story and they see me as a hero, I'm definitely very honored. What's the biggest impediment? What's the biggest drawback that people say to you? Look, I, I'm just not brave enough. I can't do this. I, what, what do people come to you with and how do you tell them to get around it? How do you advise them? I think the biggest one is probably I'm, a, I'm scared to fail or I'm scared to uh, let the people who have trusted me down or I'm scared to not achieve my goal. 
And I think that's a big part of entrepreneurship is that you're taking a risk. And so I say like, if, if you want to become an entrepreneur or if you want to start your project or your idea, then you have to at least try to take that risk. And, and I, I say be fearless, it's a little bit cliche, but you have to try to be fearless and take that risk. So either their age sometimes, because I talk to a lot of kids, or I'm afraid to fail or do something wrong, but there's honestly so much to learn when you fail or when um, you do something wrong or make a mistake. What was it like going on Shark Tank at nine years old? I, I come up with a, a word. I came up with a word called nerve sighting because I was it was so nerve wracking. There's a bunch of millionaires and billionaires that are staring at you like this, but it's also really exciting because I had been working on my business for years. I had practiced my pitch. I had reviewed percentages with my math teacher. I had <laughs> upgraded our branding and worked with my parents. So it's really exciting and, and it was a huge opportunity. And honestly, having Mr. Damon as a partner after Shark Tank has been amazing as well. Who inspired you? I mean, it was your great grandmother's recipe, I believe. I mentioned the fact that you were stung by a bee and, and decided to, to do something to help protect them because you recognized there was a, a conservation issue there. Were your parents helping you? Who around you was also helping you as a four and a half year old deciding that you wanted to do something to help? so many people i mean first my parents um when i told them that i wanted to take my lemonade sand into a bottled product instead of completely shutting it down they said okay even though we have no <laughs> experience in beverage how could we do that so that was really important because i knew that my ideas would be valued also my great granny helen for sending me that cookbook it was old and tattered but we found a really amazing hidden gem in it um, I'm also quite inspired by Miss Michelle Obama, not only because I met her, but also because she was an amazing first lady and a philanthropist and an author. And so I do try to be like her. And then also, who else? Ooh, Miss Madam C.J. Walker. She was a first self-made millionaire, and um, she uh, overcame a lot of challenges while being a black woman in America. So she is a big inspiration to me as well. Is that important? to be that kind of role model for, for young people as well, because you are a trailblazer, but you're also a role model at a pretty difficult time in America as well, a contentious time, but also a time I think of great hope too. I think representation and diversity is really important. So yes, it is. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. What's the plan? You are 16. You are the CEO of a company, <laughs> a founder of a company. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people thinking, what, what's she going to do next? Do you want to go to college? What's the plan? No, I'm not planning on stopping anytime soon, <laughs> whether it's personally or with me and the bees. I... For me and the bees, I still want me and the bees to be the number one lemonade in America. So we're working on getting, we actually are about to go into all 50 states in the United States with a new partner and um, also possibly new flavors. And then for me personally, I want to continue learning. I'm a junior in high school right now, so currently undergoing the college application process. Um, but also I want to make sure that I'm, I'm continually meeting more people and increasing my skills. And I think... One of my goals for a while has been to be able to invest in other female or entrepreneurs of color. So that is something that I may want to do or continue learning how to do. I think you are the proof that you can be whatever you choose to be. Hard work okay. and talent. Michaela, great to have you on the show. Congratulations and um, thank you for being such a great role model. Michaela Ulmer there, CEO of Me and the Bees Lemonade. I'm, I'm ambitious too. 
taking on the United States. <laughs> Watch this space. <laughs> Thank you, Michaela. All right, you're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move and to France now, where a unique kind of street art is appearing. It's made by women and it's calling attention to the particular issues that women face. Melissa Bell has been speaking with some of the artists. In Paris, it is the streets themselves that women are reclaiming. Through art, celebrating their bodies and their rights, with mirrors for women to see themselves, messages of support and images of strength. We still struggle to get uh, equal rights, equal salaries. So it's important for me to show that if you are a strong woman, powerful woman, you can help to raise uh, the other woman and to then as well give them the inspiration to fight for our rights. Vic O focuses her art on that which is rarely seen in the media outside of pornography. She uses social media to showcase her art, but it is by placing it in the streets she feels that she can make the biggest difference. The public space is quite complicated for women. We seem to have the same rights as men, but in reality it's quite different because we tend to feel more scared when we're by ourselves at night. We don't hang out as men could. Uh, we try to go from point A to point B and, and uh, it can be quite oppressing uh, regarding street harassment. But it isn't just through art that the streets of France have been reclaimed for women. A law introduced here in 2018, the first of its kind in the world, has made sexual harassment in the street, so catcalling, lewd gestures, lewd comments, a punishable offence. Since then, 2,650 fines have been given out, according to the Ministry of the Interior, and the streets made that a little bit more comfortable for women. Another campaign in 2019 saw messages like these spring up around the French capital, posters remembering the victims of femicide. By the November of that year, 137 women in France had been killed at the hands of their partners, according to an advocacy group. Don't wait for us to be dead to believe us, is Claudie Baudry's message today. But she's delivered many others to the world on the sidewalk just outside her house in Montmartre. It's a way to demonstrate, to uh, awaken conscience. It's a way to spread information, thoughts, opinions, uh, with the intention of changing mentalities. Because Baudry's messages are written in chalk, she also posts them to Instagram. The poetry itself may disappear with the rain, but she says it is the fact that it is outdoors that is the point. It's really a shout in the street, a silent shout that you bring in your head and that makes you think and change, hopefully. Melissa Bell, CNN, Paris. Melissa Bell there. Now, one hour into the session and a final look at the Wall Street price action. It's been a volatile day on Wall Street so far. And we've only had one hour of it. Tech, well, we're down around three-tenths of 1%, bouncing back slightly in the last few minutes. The US 10-yield also dipping back below 1.6%. Paul and Monica joins me now. Bottom line, Paul, just be prepared for volatility, I think, and very much a situation where we're watching what's going on in the bond markets. As those bond yields rise, it's creating indigestion pressure in inequities and particularly some of the highest valued stocks, tech. 
Yeah, you're right, Julia. I think the big worry right now is that if yields, which have risen very dramatically in just a couple of months, they keep spiking higher, that's going to make it more difficult to justify the premium valuations for companies like an Amazon or a Tesla, these poster children for this tech momentum trade. And it's one of the reasons why you know, you're seeing bank stocks actually leading the market this year. They benefit from rising rates. And let's be honest, this is a good news scenario, though, because rates are going up because the global economy is improving, knock on wood, and you're seeing oil prices spike as a result of that. And that's why energy stocks have been leaders this year, too. Yeah. The question is whether some of the rotation that we're seeing, and to your point as well, we've got Apple, we've got Amazon in correction territory. They're down 10% or more from, from recent highs. But oh boy, have they come a long way. The question is, is whether we just see this temporary rotation that you're talking about, bond yields stabilize and people go back to investing or this becomes something bigger. Yeah, I think that you've got to keep a very close eye on that 10-year bond yield they're still historically relatively low, around 1.6%. Yes. But it's the magnitude of the spike that has people alarmed. How much higher do they go? If we stabilize in, say, uh, you know, a 1.75 to 2% range and we don't top that, then that probably is still a recipe for good economic growth. It's not something that's going to cripple the financial system. It's not going to hurt demand for housing and mortgage lending. So that's probably a good sign. But I think the worry is that who knows how high rates will go and what the Federal Reserve will have to do. Do they have to finally step in and say, oh, yeah, all those plans about not raising rates for a couple of years? Forget that. We might have to you know, start moving a little more quickly because we don't want the economy to overheat. And it's, it's a strange phenomenon. Who would have thought a year ago we'd be talking about the economy potentially overheating? I know. And your point, wrote though, was a really important one that was we're complaining about 10 year interest rates that are at one point six percent. If you look back in history, this is nothing. This is a fraction, but fine. And it's a global issue as well. The ECB, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, Japan, China, all trying to calibrate the stimulus that they've provided with at some point trying to take it back. We're going to spend weeks and months and years talking about this ball. We're done for now. Paul Monica, thank you so much for that. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages later. Search for at CNN. Get that right. But for now, that's it for the show. Stay safe and connect the world with Becky Anderson. It's next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.